0: Oh, there we go. Yeah. If I have, if I wear two headphones at <laughs> once, I can hear myself and I can hear you.
1: God, I wish this thing was video, man, because I like, get to be doing a podcast about self therapy. which is like, okay. <laughs>
0: technology man like this is what i resent the most about the pandemic probably <laughs> it's just that it's like making me like fully confront this learning curve yeah. that i know i try to avoid all the time by just not using certain programs and apps or whatever
1: yeah it's unpleasant mhm we should try to do a podcast like an extreme podcast sometime you know where we like like we do it with megaphones or something From like hilltops, (laughs) just try like some like crazy
0: cutting edge stuff. I still can't wait to do a live show. Yeah, I think that's gonna
1: be like amazing when we finally are able to. I can't even imagine what that feels like. I did one like a, or I've done maybe two like talks, like those types of like songwriter circles, or one was like about lyrics and stuff, and those were those were kind of fun. They were weird at first because it's just strange to be sitting there with not a guitar, you know, to just be sitting in front of people and why am I here? And then it's like, once you kind of get into the flow of it, it's really nice. I always sort of imagined it would be like that.
0: Yeah. The closest I've gotten to that, I think I've told you about the night at the hearing room where it was me, Max Clark and Joe Follin, and they had us do rounds. So it was all three of us on the stage at the same time, kind of like making free associations. And like, this was my idea. As I told the crowd to shout out prompts, and then we would do a round of three where we'd all play a song of ours based on that prompt. Um, so it was like it was improv comedy meets open mic night meets like um, an actual singer songwriter's showcase. But it was the three of us like telling stories about like, OK, I have to explain why this song relates to that word. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> so it wasn't so much a storyteller's thing as it was just like a collaborative uh, improv free association
1: thing. You know, that's fun, though. I, I miss that a lot. Like that's one of those things about gigs that I, I didn't appreciate at the time and now I'm, I'm just really realizing that it was a, it was a cool kind of rare dynamic that could happen there. The only thing I didn't like was the fact that you're pinned down. Like at least you can psych yourself into a set but like the worst part of the set for me is like the going up and kind of getting into the swing of it and then once I'm up there I can go forever as long as I'm not sick or something and it's like if I did that I got stage fright every time. Like every time we switched people it was like starting the gig again. So it, I I loved the like the association that you could make with someone else's stuff where you could send people off down tangents, and that was fun. But I would get freaked out every single time it would come back to me. And I used to do it at Passim for campfire and stuff, and that was every time something horrible is happening physically to me. I don't know why, but every time I would go in and be like, I'm going to do this one really well, and I'm going to be just on my game. And... Just the most bizarre things. Like one of them, I just accidentally poured a bunch of espressos into the coffee that I'd had that morning. And that <laughs> kicked in like right when I went on stage. And the world just slowed down. So I had no idea if I was playing my song super fast or super slow, but I felt like I was on another planet. And it was awful. Like my inner voice sounded like Lenny Bruce. It was just terrifying. <laughs> I thought I was going to have a heart attack. But I do miss them. I miss caffeine
0: consumption. Personally, have you not been doing it during this over? I'd say like over the past year or so, I've just like been cutting down gradually. But during the pandemic, I've just been like having one cup in the morning and then cut it off there. And I don't know that I miss it so much because I don't know if it was ever really benefiting me. I think it was more just like a psychological or, or like a psychosomatic like, oh, I'm drinking coffee. So I must be energetic right now. Uh today I had to actually I took a nap and then woke up at like 8:30 and and made a cup of coffee. So it's like I get one cup per sleep, you know? <laughs> <Or> like <laughs> one dose of caffeine per sleep, so a nap counts.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I cut down too early on. I'm I'm getting back up now. It just kind of like happened over time, but I realized I missed having a reason to be awake initially. Like it was like I missed the coffee and stuff, but I also missed the reasons why I was drinking 12 cups of coffee in the morning. So it was like, cause I had to, cause there was stuff going on in the world that I wanted to be awake for. And now I'm like, what, who cares if I'm up for 12 hours or 15 hours or 36 hours? Like it doesn't matter anymore. That was an adjustment.
0: I've been feeling kind of the same way. It's just like, all right, I I need this to be awake, but I don't need a ton of energy the way that I used to. And honestly, I would say that my energy levels are just better in general right now because I am on my own clock. You know, I'm on my own schedule. And like, nothing's better than just like having agency and having, you know, the free will to go about your day at your own pace.
1: Yeah. And like, we've talked about the idea that we're not getting trapped into conversations anymore and stuff. Like, it's not as forced to just interact with people anymore because it's much more selective. So, even just that introvert burnout that happens, I find that was half the reason I needed caffeine was just to be peppy and just to kind of smile my way through those. And now I don't have to, it's it's relieving. And the
0: coffee shop was where I would be getting sucked into those conversations the most. So like sometimes I'd just be like, all right, there's three shots of espresso. And now I guess I'm just <laughs> stuck here talking to people and like, I might get a little panicky in a minute. I don't know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's the worst when it kind of tips to that other side.
0: <laughs> Man, overall, my hypochondria has been, like, decent throughout this whole thing. But the other night, I was I had an upset stomach, so, like, there was something, something small going on. But, like, I was convinced that I had a fever the whole night, and I couldn't get to sleep. And finally, at, like, 3 in the morning, I went outside and, like, paced up and down the street, and it was nice and cool out. And I came back inside and I was just like, oh, my house is fucking 90 degrees. <laughs> I don't have a fever. I'm fine. Yeah. But it was nerve wracking because, again, like you just have that knowledge that like, okay, so rationally, I'm going to know that I'm fine. But irrationally, the heat is going to continue and I'm always going to have that fear. And like I, I know there are going to be those moments where I don't know the difference between weather and fever.
1: Yeah. It's a weird thing to be paranoid about too. I was never paranoid about having a fever until this, like it was, it always was something that would bum me out if I had one, you know, I'd find out that I was coming down with something significant enough at least to put me in bed for a couple of days. But now it's that terror, like, Oh my God, who did I hang out with? Or like, is my family going to get sick? It's always just that I go from like, like right now, it's probably a hundred degrees in this room. I don't know why. But I had this whole thought process like 25 minutes ago, just sitting here being like, oh no, this is going to be, especially once everybody goes to sleep, you know, because I feel like I'm going to have to wake them up and tell them no one talked to me for a few weeks, you know, and that scares the hell out of me. So I've gotten to a point where I just take my temperature every time I get like that because it's just that line in the sand. Like Anything after this, if I feel these feelings and I rationalize them however I do, I can see my irrationality at that point and I can sort of learn its habits that way. And that's been helping a lot, but it freaks me out like once a week, at least.
0: (laughs) I've been meaning to go out and buy a thermometer and I will, and I should, but I also know this about myself that like, I am a, I am a master of psychosomatic manifestations and like if i think i have a fever and i go to take my temperature there's like a 40% chance that i will give myself a fever
1: yeah that's almost kind of zen you know it's like the way <laughs> the way the monks can can stop their own hearts or slow them down to a crawl like you might actually have a superpower in a way
0: it is a good precursor i think to just being in control of of your body like i don't know about stopping your heart But if you're able to stop epinephrine from being um, uh, distributed through your body and you're able to stop that panic attack and you're able to just like use rational rather than irrational thoughts to say, like, okay, I have to slow my heart rate, I have to slow my breathing, I have to like stop hyperventilating, you know, whatever. So I guess like figuring out how to channel that irrational panic and how to channel that like, whatever goes into the psychosomatic stuff, and channeling that instead into calming your body down. But also, I find that knowing some of the science behind it is what helps a lot too.
1: Yes, that helps. That gives me like a sense of control, I find, or at least a sense of that it's mechanical, you know, like a sense that it's kind of, it's a chemical reaction, or it's some process that's happening physically, so it doesn't have all the existential ramifications that I'm afraid of, and that helps so much.
0: I was listening to, um, uh, if you go to selftherapy.org, there are these recordings of this guy. He's got a very soothing voice, and he kind of walks you through these meditation practices that are meant to both like acknowledge the reality and and validate your anxiety and your and your fears but also turn those things into elements of their own that you can communicate with. So he was saying, you know, close your eyes and and do some breathing and do some awareness exercises. And once you can kind of like center yourself and really feel the vibrations and the energy in your body that are the physical manifestations of a certain anxiety, of a certain fear, of a certain element, negative element that you're feeling, um, greet that thing you know and just say like oh hello anxiety hello nervousness blah, blah 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 and my version of that for the past few years has been like hello sympathetic nervous system <laughs> yeah and i'd say more often than not i'm able to kind of stop and go like wait i have to wait for parasympathetic nervous system now to kick in and do its job and calm me down um and that can be a long long waiting process yeah <laughs> But that is, I find that's very, very helpful if you are able to just name something, you know, if you're able to single something out as an element separate from you and that way it's not, I'm anxious, that way it's anxiety is present in me. Can I find that before it like gets me to my tipping point and communicate with it and somehow mediate with it?
1: Yeah, yeah. What well, seems like a lot of people, like myself included, it, it becomes your identity as soon as it becomes present enough in your mind to actually realize that something serious is happening. I never really thought about that, but the idea that like I am anxious, it's like it takes you over. And I think that's one of the scariest things about anxiety, specifically in any sort of panic disorder too. It's that like it, it's form fitting. It becomes your worst nightmare, whatever you're afraid of in that moment. Like if you're terrified of having a heart attack, your panic attack's gonna be something to do with your chest at some point and I think just giving it a name that isn't that thing is such a power grab and it's it's crucial it just puts it back in your control and it's and you can then talk yourself down and it's it's tiring but that's the real power in that to me
0: You know, I saw counselors and psychiatrists when I was a kid for depression and anxiety, but it wasn't an ongoing thing. It was more of a, let's find short-term solutions to these, at the time, new experiences that I was having. But as far as my adult life, quote-unquote, therapy is concerned, it was non-existent for a really long time, and I sort of to put it very concisely, I sort of woke up one day and realized that I had agency and realized that I was an adult who should be caring about my health more than I was. And I, you know, went on this sort of um, uh, figurative journey to find out more about myself and to accept more about myself. It's not really a journey to self-acceptance. It's a journey of self-acceptance. And, you know, it's it's not really a destination. It's something that you always need to be conscious of. So learning more about yourself in an archetypical sense or in a personality type sense, you know, whatever you need to know and love and accept about yourself. That sort of has been my version of self-therapy, although we're going to be talking, uh, uh, we're going to be going down a different rabbit hole for sure. But what what are your thoughts on that, though?
1: Just self-therapy in general? I think it's cool. I mean, I think it's kind of what you make it. It's It's a hard thing to pinpoint specifically because it's not really a branch. Like, if you're researching any other type of therapy that someone else is doing, there's a school of thought. There's a study behind it. Like, it's something that's been established and tested scientifically, hopefully. And with the self-therapy, it's very much, it is a journey. And I don't know, I think it's something that's worth for anybody that's willing to take it on, it, it's worth doing it as fully and as broadly as you feel comfortable doing and just seeing where that takes you. Because, I mean, for me, it's taken me into professional therapy occasionally. It's taken me into reading about, like, religion and, and different philosophies and stuff. It's taken me to join sports teams and bands and stuff. It just it's – it's a permission when you think about it. It's a permission to just explore And I think if nothing else, I had a therapist tell me that once actually, that curiosity is the greatest power that you have as a person. And that's always stuck with me. And it's always been true that just you're giving yourself that key to just unlock anything you come up to. And it won't necessarily be good or bad or whatever. It's just that's crucial as a starting point to me.
0: I'm glad you brought that up. That's a conversation I remember having with you. And basically your therapist was telling you, you know, when you are reacting to a certain feeling that you have, a certain thought that you have, see if you can stop reacting and see if you can just be curious for a minute. Uh, Be curious about where that thought comes from or where a certain fear comes from. And if you can identify and analyze that thing, then it will stop you from reacting irrationally. That is actually, in the clinical sense, that is a lot of what self-therapy is, is sort of breaking down the rational versus irrational behind your thoughts and behaviors. I've done a little bit of reading up on this at this point, and there isn't one specific school of thought behind self-therapy. You're right about that. But there are several schools of thought that can be employed to practice self-therapy. And I wonder if you have come across any specifically that have benefited
1: you. Nothing that really springs to mind as far as one that I've grabbed onto. I mean, I've read a lot about like the the principles of introspection and kind of being with your feelings like in the Buddhist sense. Like that was the stuff that I think resonated the most, but it's been pretty fast and loose as far as the clinical side of my own approach to it. The only time I think I got very um very scientific about it or very kind of academic about it was when there were drugs involved and it was I was sitting there doing the math, you know, like how I had to deal with that. But that was it. And honestly, it's partially I think I'm just, uh, I can't pin it down. You know, it it feels like it's just subject to change all the time. And some days I wake up and something resonates and some days it doesn't. So none of the official schools of thought have really stuck with me in that way.
0: Okay. Well, we'll go through some of those in a bit. But what I found in my reading was that the one of the main goals of self-therapy as a... Branch of psychology is to gain a tolerance for unwanted feelings. Um, the main goal, kind of across the board, is to be able to still feel them. So there was there was one school called the Internal Family Systems Therapy, and they actually have this this notion that there are thoughts and feelings and uh, emotions that they call exiles. And the exiles are like are protected by like the mother and, and like these these protective parts of your brain that you form so that these feelings don't have to be accessed, so that these emotions don't ever have to affect your life, right? And this can be from trauma, this can be from extreme fear and anxiety, these can be like the things that are going to paralyze you if the if you bring them to the surface, right? They call them the exiles. But again, across the board, the point that they make is they want to encourage you to not dissociate. They want to encourage you to feel these things as they are so that you can feel a full spectrum of emotion. And so often what we're doing is burying the negative side of that spectrum. We're so afraid to delve into that negative territory. But the truth is it's necessary to do so so that you can develop a tolerance for that territory and develop the ability to greet those feelings as different entities within you.
1: Now, do you think if that was taught earlier in life, like if we were brought up as children to kind of accept these parts of ourselves and it was just maybe a gentler and a more... Um... I don't know, like a a more academic approach to some of this stuff, the way physical health is dealt with essentially. Like we we learn about nutrition. We learn about physical fitness. We learn about like when you should go to the doctor, when you feel sick. like. But mental health has this pejorative connotation. So sometimes I wonder if even our definition of trauma is off sometimes because you think about trauma as being like a dagger in the heart, and it sure as hell can be. But I feel like sometimes there's even just instances. Like I, I remember things that definitively changed the way that I behaved as a person when I was four or five years old. And they were just simple, you know, getting mocked by an entire preschool class, like stuff like that. It's not inherently traumatic compared to what adulthood can throw at you or what certain childhoods can throw at you or any singular event can throw at you. But those things encode to a kid differently than they would encode to you as an adult. And I wonder sometimes if it's, if that problem begins back there, you know, if we almost shouldn't even have to be unearthing as much as we are, if we could just be catching it before it's able to go so deep and before it triggers a panic response.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm grateful that I've been able to deal with some of those traumas the way that I've been able to. However, when I went to a psychologist as a kid and, you know, was put on antidepressants and um, my problems were being quote unquote dealt with it wasn't necessarily for me. It was for the people around me. You know, I went to a psychologist and it was not therapy. It was a diagnosis so that I could be medicated. And I don't resent any of this. You know, it just would have been nice at the time. And I think a lot of the work that we have to do is encourage therapy and encourage discussions, whether clinical or otherwise, about how people are affected by certain traumas and by certain realizations about themselves certain like defining events and to address them early on is to know how to address them later
1: yeah exactly
0: and that that's what you're saying it's like we we are so often not taught how to be vulnerable especially when we're young and we're kind of like fending for ourselves on the playground you know But even just aside from that, we're talking about the late 90s for me, and there was still such a stigma behind mental health. And I didn't feel necessarily like I was being stigmatized for being on Prozac when I was a kid. You know, if anything, it actually like lumped me in with a category that I had always kind of identified with anyway, just because of where we were at culturally at that time. But I... Absolutely would have liked to know how to have a conversation about it. When you're a kid, you don't know where to look for that. And so that's something that I just have to encourage anybody listening to keep in mind, is that it's sometimes not enough to go to the school psychologist or even an outside psychologist and say, diagnose my child whoever it is, whoever's going through that trauma at that time is going to be too young to know what that conversation needs to be. So those conversations need to be modeled and then they need to learn how to express themselves through that lens.
1: Yeah. Because I mean, that's that's one of the things that I realized about psychology at one point is that it's a tool, it's a hired service. And I feel like that gets lost somewhere in the translation of when you're either starting to work with a therapist or you're being sent to the guidance counselor or whatever, it becomes your identity. And even it can be a good thing in a weird way for people like us where we're kind of artist types or musicians or something, and you get kind of that cool romantic image of what it is to be a tortured artist. So I think in a way, we had a cushier landing in that sense than somebody who maybe wants to be a venture capitalist, and all of a sudden they start freaking out, and it, you know, it's, that has to be a way harder ride. But no matter what, it shouldn't become your identity in any way and there shouldn't be this pressure to go to a therapist or go to any course of of thought really and and just feel like that has to be what it is you know it might not work they might not be right and basically you have to keep your agency as much as you're able to it's it's difficult with this because some of these disorders actually rob you of it but I, I remember that being when I was younger that was a very hard battle to fight sometimes especially with people like the guidance counselors, because they were more like a pit crew you know they wanted to just kind of like put the tires back on and clean the windshield and then get you back on the track to college and success. And so I just sometimes wanted to talk. Yeah. And that's, you know, two things. One, that
0: was what I was talking about. That's a comfortable place to land because it was the era of Prozac and it was when, you know, depression and, and mental disorder was prevalent in, in, um, in pop culture it was a comfortable place to land in that sense because I knew that I was, I was relating to a lot of the depression fueled art that I was consuming. Sure. Um, and I, it was sort of a person that I knew, uh, how to feel like, but not how to be, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And so to respond to that second thing, it is, you're right. a, A team or a pit crew of guidance counselors, it's people trying to get you to function well in school, maybe. It's people trying to get you to function well within the context of your family, maybe. But what I think I always lacked was someone to teach me how to function in the world after being diagnosed with depression. So that's what I think um, we're going to benefit from in the future as therapy and mental illness are destigmatized as much as they. Not necessarily as much as they need to be, but
1: we're getting there, I think yeah, it really is amazing that the conversation is being had in this way compared to even early twentieth century when the lobotomy was was going on to just think that in a hundred years or so, give or take, we've come from from there to actually being able to talk about like maybe we should redefine how we deal with some of these issues. Yeah. Instead of dealing Maybe there with the literal hammer, normal. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> that, in and of itself, is kind of whacked when you think about it. And I think so much of it is just the curiosity. Again, it's like just asking, like if guidance counselors more often than not would ask questions as opposed to offering like prescriptions. And I mean, I don't mean to keep ragging on guidance counselors specifically, but it's an easy profession to kind of exemplify a lot of this stuff within. Like it's. Cause that is their purpose is to basically make sure that you're functioning okay in school. And it's a valid job. It's like an HR department, you know, but I don't know. I think the curiosity and that agency should go all the way up the chain, you know, to the doctors too. And to the just let everybody kind of take a breath before we jump to what we feel like we have to be or what we feel like we have to diagnose or be diagnosed with, you know?
0: Yeah. And that's, that's really important is allowing you Even as hard as it is to process things like that when you're young, even if you have had a model for it, you know a lot of kids who develop anxiety, who develop depression, have had the ailment modeled for them in their homes, but it hasn't always been treated the best way. And just in terms of generational evolution, I think that's where we're at now, is we're more likely to see somebody developing those ailments in a household where someone has had the proper experience with it someone has gone through the proper channels and and learned about themselves and evolved as humans to be able to treat it. That has been like somewhat of an impossibility until fairly recently. So I think like, you know, the conversations that we'll be having on this show are going to resonate with more people than it ever could have. And that's a very good thing. And the other thing for us is go- it's going to be that we have to be able to model vulnerability for the listeners who maybe haven't had it modeled for them. Um, Cause I think, you know, if, if you look at anyone struggling with saying how they feel or what they're thinking or having doubts, you know, uh, so many people are afraid to be vulnerable because they haven't had it modeled for them.
1: Well, it's, it's disambiguating vulnerability and weakness to some extent yeah. too. I think they get lumped in so easily with one another and they can certainly cross paths here and there, but, It doesn't necessarily mean that you're weak. It almost never means that you're weak if you're being vulnerable just because of the sheer amount of guts it takes to exist that way in the world. Exactly. Yeah, so often vulnerability
0: means strength. What's interesting about internal family systems therapy, which I mentioned before, is that it actually posits that your psyche is made up of different sub personalities. So different like archetypical personalities exist within your psyche. And those are the parts that protect you. And those are the parts of you that feel certain kinds of fears and, and, and whatever. I've always liked that way of looking at the brain and of looking at psychology. It makes it almost like, you would relate to them the same way that you would relate to literary archetypes. And so it resonates with me a lot.
1: That's actually what I was just going to ask. Are they external archetypes? Like, are they things that are kind of established through, like, mores and, and norms? Or are they internal, like, just different facets of yourself that you cultivate over time?
0: So, yeah, it's the perfectionist, the inner controller, the taskmaster, the underminer, the destroyer, the guilt tripper, and the molder. And I didn't dig too deep into the facets of all of those individually, but that's what I meant when I said, you know, the exiles, it's, you know, what is, uh, hovering over those exiles and keeping them protected. And it's the neurotic archetypes
1: that exist within us. Yeah. I never really considered it that way before. I really, I like, and I find that I trust a lot more things that are are multifaceted that way, as opposed to absolutes. Like it's, it's almost, it feels like a color wheel to me, you know, like there's just all these different things that can combine and have different strengths, different intensities and, and kind of create the realities that you're, you're dealing with at any given time. There's a lot more hope to that to me than you're stuck in whatever you are. Well, like we were talking about earlier, a
0: very common thread in self-therapy is the idea that you can communicate with the entity within you that is feeling the negative thing. So if you can single out one thing as its own entity, and this has been shown in studies, that it's more effective to say I have depression than I am depressed because then you're able to deal with a condition. If you look at these inner archetypes in the same way, then you can greet that little guy. You can know that he's there. And, you know, you you don't want to give him full dominion over you, but you do want to be able to communicate with that thing and, like, get to know it. That's what self-therapy is really all about, It's getting to know these little creatures, these little, like, parts of you that are maybe indelible, maybe will maybe we'll never go away. But we don't learn to communicate with them. We learn to hide from them. We learn to be fearful of them but we never really learn to communicate with them, which is just a matter of, of
1: self-talk, right? Yeah. Self-talk's at the core of it, really. I mean, that's just having those tools, self-talk and and imagination, you know, that's, it's, they're all kind of cliches when you come down to them, but it's your sandbox. It's your playground. Like just get to know the characters in there and, and sort of start writing some of those narratives yourself and start understanding how the tools work and, a lot of the stuff that we're told is crazy. You know, like walking around talking to yourself, for instance, is not encouraged in society overall. But it's the best. Oh, it's the best thing in the world. <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> it's if I'm ever driving and no one else is in the car, that's all I'm doing. I've to, had to turn music down in order to do that. And it's just the most freeing thing because sometimes things just sound... Insane when you say them out loud, and you realize I shouldn't be afraid of that at all. That that makes no earthly sense. And sometimes you can work through problems that way. And as soon as you stop judging yourself in that way, it, it's so liberating.
0: Every single phone conversation that I'm that I'm having these days. I'll ask people, what have you learned about yourself through quarantine, through solitude? And pretty much everyone that I've spoken to has had a relatively profound answer when I've asked them that. And as this pertains to our topic, this is actually a really good opportunity. It's an unfortunate occurrence, but it's a good opportunity for anyone to say, okay, How am I functioning now that is different from how I was functioning before the pandemic? What needs do I have now that I didn't know I had then? So just as it pertains to self-therapy, this is ultimately a good thing because then you get to name those things, as we were talking about. We can also observe our own behaviors when we're alone. So I think we should touch on cognitive behavioral therapy, at least briefly, because that's the touchstone that people go to most often when they think about self-therapy. So I wonder, your experience with, a, with an actual therapist, has that employed CBT at all?
1: Almost exclusively, yeah. That's, that's been most of my experience. That was what I thought therapy was for most of my adolescence. I didn't know that there were other, other types. It just feels logical even now. I mean, it's been fascinating to learn about the other types, but it's also, that one to me feels like a very kind of, you get out of it what you put in. It's not invasive in a lot of the creepy ways that like therapy can get a bad rap for, you know, like the tweed jacket and that weird chaise lounge kind of thing. Like you get those images, but I never got that feeling from any CBT experience I've ever had. And I don't know, it just feels a little bit more, um, just a little more low impact, a little healthier. So I've always really liked it. Are you able or comfortable giving an example now of
0: a a thought pattern or behavior that you hadn't identified before that you had to learn to identify?
1: Oh, God, yeah, there's been a ton. Let me try to think of a good one, though. Um, Yeah, actually, I realized probably within the last calendar year, I realized that I have way more of a macho streak than I thought I ever did. Oh, that's interesting. And I never, it makes so much sense now. But I have this, like, hyper-competitive, weirdly, like, tough guy thing buried way deep down. But it's not validated by anything physical about me. (laughs) You know, it's like I'm super uncoordinated. I get sick all the time. I'm emotional. It's like there's nothing that is me that the world would see that would make that seem true. So I think I just shoved it way down when I was younger and just was like, this can't be. But, um, yeah, I've been kind of learning more about that lately and realizing how that informs Just even just things like ambition. So that's that's been an interesting journey to find out about that. Very interesting. Yeah. So what were you?
0: What were these sort of faulty patterns that were manifesting in order to hide that?
1: Uh, I would just be a dick sometimes. You know, just stuff like that. Like (laughs) just that. I mean, I don't know. It was just um, kind of indecisive in a way. Like I wouldn't realize that maybe I was like projecting something or i was lashing out at the world around me because i was just too bound up to like make a decision about something that i knew was right or kind of t- like to almost embrace it was hard it's like i would be around artists and stuff and i would feel that that kind of more feminine side of myself it felt more appropriate and then i would go around like my hometown and stuff and it felt like that that man man's you know that needed to be the one so it was just this constant flipping between the two of them and it created this real inbuilt indecision that I think I just needed to kind of like stop and breathe and actually look at and be like, all right, that exists. Let's figure out why. And now I'm realizing they're both, they're yin and yang kind of. That's so interesting. Cause I don't think anybody sees you that way. <laughs> as masculine? <like. laughs>
0: as Well, as macho, definitely not. Yeah. No, I'm too and, weak. I'm, I'm too frail. Not as a competitive person. Mm. Um, so I, I want, like, is that a part of you that you needed to have acknowledged I think so. Like, do you not feel seen by others? If it doesn't seem like they they acknowledge that about you,
1: no, I actually love that no one does. It's um that I find that to be just a, a weight lifted, you know. But um, because it's a lot of pressure, that becomes a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. I think when other people recognize you as competitive, then they start challenging you to things, and then you're like, well, I have to win, and then you're just tired, and I don't want that. But it's like this, I think it's honestly a lot of the reason I'm not dead, you know? It's like, it's just this kind of inbuilt, like, basically if if life is a game and I have to play this game, then I'm going to win this goddamn game. So it's more like that. It's not necessarily competitive about every little thing. Like if we were sitting here like playing a, like a literal game together or something, I wouldn't be, my self-worth wouldn't hang on that, you know? It's like I can do things like that like a human being, but it's like this sense of like, I want to go fast. Like, I want to do something with my life. Want, you know, it's just wanting to mean something. I think it came out of being, like, kind of a diminutive kid. and I don't know. That's So that's what I've been kind of learning, is it It was like this kind of Napoleon thing maybe, and then it turned into a macho streak, and then it got crushed down because I wanted to be sensitive. And then I – I don't know. It just – it's flipped all over the grid. So it's been a lot to, to kind of take in and to try to understand. But, yeah, I'm realizing it's all still part of me. It's just I have to really kind of, like, understand – where these lines are and sometimes, you know, try to deploy these things the right ways.
0: Yeah. Cause I've, I've been like much the opposite, you know, you you and I have, have talked about like <laughs> how likely it is that as a creative person, at some point you'll go through a Hemingway phase. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And my Hemingway phase was full of, I mean, really it was just full of like drinking and like I would project a lot of masculinity at certain points in my life. Not always. And now I'm just comfortable like not being that person, which like on a, on a day to day communication basis can be an inhibitor for me because sometimes the people that you have to communicate with, uh, only know how to communicate as men. Yeah. And that's something that I've had to, that I'm, I think I'm still learning how to navigate.
1: But it's interesting though, cause I think the world sees, at least the world that I'm privy to sees you as more masculine not like macho, like John Wayne, like an asshole or something, but, you know, like <laughs> like you're always able to fix stuff. Well, yeah. Like I've seen you wield a hammer multiple times and put up like shelves and lights and stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I know that people kind of see me as, you know, a, a helpful handyman and, and I'm glad to play the role when I can and when I know what I'm doing. In a lot of cases, I don't know what I'm doing, you know. So it's, it's kind of a, an identity
1: crisis for me. <laughs> <laughs> But what did it feel like when you first kind of realized you were moving away from the Hemingway phase? Was that a heartbreaking thing? Um, Or or did it just kind of feel like this is, I don't know, this is how it should go or this is where I'm heading?
0: Well, okay, the Hemingway thing itself was rather short-lived. And it was definitely an identity that I assumed more for the sake of social pressure than it was for the sake of art. And it was a little bit of both, but I wouldn't say it was equally both. Uh, so when I moved away from that, I had less confidence as a writer. And so that's why it was a heartbreaking thing. Because, like, for, for, you know, as an artist, you can kind of assume an identity. And you can assume a false sense of prowess when you're being imitative. And that's fine, I think, when it comes to the creation of art. But it's not always the healthiest thing when you take that and then turn it to your social life. So... That didn't really aid me in anything other than masking my discomfort in the social world that I was in. So being able to let go of that and actually recognize elements of my true self, that allowed me to be the social being that I had never been able to be before.
1: Uh and that's cool because it's like you almost can't have that realization without going to that forbidden place, you know? Because like, I, I had similar experiences with stuff. Like like I had that, you know, kind of the whiskey swirling in the glass phase, and I don't know if I ever could have accepted those parts of myself if I hadn't embraced that in a way. It's, it's just there. It's forbidden fruit, and it seems so possible, especially with Hemingway because it really seems like that's going to work initially. The main point that I would get to here, though, is
0: is that it's about being able to make an offering. Uh, I think a lot about the inlets that we have to find, you know, as creative people, we throw around the word outlet a lot. I think a lot about inlets, for instance, something that I have to, uh, to offer now is vulnerability, but there's not always an inlet for it. You're not always around other people who want to have that modeled for them or who want to have conversations where vulnerability is present. So as A creative person, and as a person struggling socially, you have to find the inlets for the work that you're doing, whether that's psychological or spiritual or creative work. There have to be places for it to go. So can what you perceive as flaws also be offerings? Can the things that you know about yourself that maybe you resent about yourself and maybe have inhibited you over time, can those things also be offerings that you can make and
1: ways that you can participate in the world? Well, I mean, it's it's almost like when you're writing a song or something, and you know how it sometimes you'll revise it or you'll edit it or whatever a hundred times, and it's always that first idea, it's always that first line or whatever, first hook that is just the coolest one, it's just the purest one. It seems like it can be that way with personality, with life sometimes too. That whatever you're running from, whatever that core thing that you've been trying to erase and trying to explain away for as long as you've been able to kind of come up with those aspects of your identity on your own, that's kind of who you are, and that's what you can mold into whatever you're going to give back to the world. Because it's almost, it's the most natural, too. It's the the thing you really know how to function as, and it's it's just, it sucks when that's not what society approves of, in a way, or that's not what society says, yeah, it's cool that you're that. And it's always the case with vulnerability. It's like, a, if you're a kid, it's not encouraged. And it's easy to put up these personas and stuff because it's just easier to get by but when you peel it away you know you can kind of realize like there's that is a lot to offer like sometimes just listening to somebody is way more than giving them advice you know just being having that open channel
0: The first iteration of cognitive behavioral therapy was developed by a man called Dr. Albert Ellis in the 50s, uh, and it was originally rational emotive therapy. The principle behind rational emotive therapy is that you identify disruptive thoughts or faulty behavior patterns, and you challenge the rationality of them. And then kind of slowly you start replacing the irrational thoughts with rational ones. And, and what we were just talking about was a, a, a method of disruptive thinking that maybe you think is aiding you in performing well socially or in connecting with people socially, but it is inhibiting you from actually acting as your true self and even conversing with your true self. So that self-talk can only happen if you're not acting out of pretense. That self-talk can only happen when you are allowing truth to exist in your world. And so if you are deluding yourself into thinking that you can hide your own truth for the sake of honoring other people's truths, to recognize that as an irrational behavior pattern is to start the first step of replacing that with rationality.
1: Do you think any of that is the modular way that we're that our lives are structured when we're, when we're young, whether it's if we're in school or even now, you know, just the way there's a lot of just getting through the night, you know, there's a lot of just kind of like, you got to be whoever you've got to be to get through ninth grade or to get through high school or to get through to this next promotion. Or it's like, it's kind of reinforced in a, not a severe way always, but you know, it's, it is just easier to get through certain situations if you are a certain persona, not necessarily to a degree that's, you know, you're inventing this character that you have to be. But, you know, you put on a little bit of like you get the haircut, you get whatever, like whatever makes you kind of fit in. And you can tell yourself that you're just doing it to just basically get to this next benchmark where you're going to be allowed to be more free. And then you'll kind of be yourself or you convince yourself that this is yourself because it's working and you can, you can rationalize it that way. I mean, what I
0: think is that we're conditioned to desire. You know, we're not conditioned to live our truth when we're young. We're conditioned to acknowledge fashion trends and to acknowledge pop culture trends and to see the people around us as the in crowd and the out crowd. And so, like, from a very early age, we're all conditioned to desire inclusion. And when we don't experience that as young kids, and I certainly didn't, We spend a lifetime trying to figure out a way to be included. And we spend all of our time almost willingly suffering because we don't know what it is that will aid our own truth. We only know what it is that will aid the truth of the exterior world. So we're conditioned from a very early age to suffer as the result of desiring something which should not be desirable but also is not attainable necessarily depending on depending on who you are and depending on how well you mold to other situations and depending on whether or not that false mold of yourself actually serves you i'm not trying to turn it into a conversation about like the 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 freaks and the geeks but that is entirely true I think. I think from a young young age we are uh we're just conditioned to be afraid
1: of not fitting in. Yeah. And that's I mean it's very real. Especially at those eight, like the scariest thing in the world is that feeling like do you remember the feeling of walking into like the cafeteria for the first time when you just realize like you're in the jungle. Like we're all still we're animals, you know? Like it's that used to scare the shit out of me when I started like, the worst nightmare was walking into a cafeteria and realizing that, like, there was a new kid at my table and all the seats were now taken. It was like I was just in free fall. I mean, where do you go from there? And it would always reinforce these feelings of, like, if I'm myself, but myself doesn't work for all these people, then I don't care if I'm a saint. And it's it just gets reinforced over and over. There's actually, I mean, those sociological theories of, of deviance and stuff, some of them are, the, like, the labeling-type theories where it's, Deviance is just labeled by or defined by the labels that we create in our societies. You know, there's the good things and the bad things. And it's impossible not to internalize some of these things because they start getting put into you at such a young age that you're not even aware the world is just the world. You know, you're not aware that there's practices that comprise the world and mechanisms that make these things happen. Yeah.
0: I wrote a whole album about this when I was 26 oh yeah Um, yeah (laughs) it was uh, called The Statue and the Star and it was all about just the the concept of deviation there has to be a norm before you can deviate but why does that norm exist and it comes down to you know the, the happy versus the sad the medicated versus the not the east versus the west the Christians versus the pagans you know what have you I tried to cover all of these topics very abstractly but it was just kind of thinking like what is the norm like what is this concept of the norm and how much do I resent it for being present in my life how's life in the high rise with you when I'm in the blue skies do you see on the outlands frames below in the they get in light when you walk in the fountains. do you see how the sun lights have you gone on just to keep away
1: from when
0: if we can get a little bit vulnerable here, since we're talking about CBT and, and stuff like that, have you had any disruptive thinking patterns when it comes to art, when it comes to being a creative person, when it comes to being a musician, any delusions or illusions that you've had to uh, rid yourself of? in order to think more clearly about what your purpose is as an artist.
1: Yeah, I probably go through them every couple of years to be honest. I'll get super into something. If with music specifically, it's it's genre based a lot of the time and I'll just go headfirst into something. Like it was I've probably done every genre that I've listened to at this point, but there was blues for a little bit. And I can always tell. I start dressing the part at a certain point because I just start. <laughs> it's subtle. It's not like a choice. It's just kind of like I listen to those records. I see those those figures in my life, and I just start identifying with parts. Like I'll start getting the um, what's that hat called? Like the cabbie one, you know? Is that like like a scally newsboy cap? cap? Yeah. A scally yeah. cap. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, more like the Newsboy one, or I went through a Libertines phase, and that was arguably the worst one in a fashion way because I <laughs> went out and I got me the fedora, you know. So <laughs> it's like here we go. But I don't know. I just yeah, I would definitely fall for stuff like that because I would just become so enraptured by whatever it was. Like the music would captivate me, the scene would captivate me. There would just be like a a love for it, and then that would turn into. Well, if I want to be good, then I got to be like this because this is what good is. It took me forever to realize that that was even a pattern and that, like, I can still love these things and love these records and even look up to these people and be my own person. I don't think it was until I started playing, like, folk was one of those. And then folk kind of worked in a professional sense for a bit. Like, I was able to kind of tour with it and stuff. And I don't think it was until I was touring with it, but playing in a punk band when I was home that it kind of clicked that, like, I can dress up as a woman and smash stuff and just go ballistic on stage and then go out and whisper about my feelings. And both of those are completely valid avenues and I can do them at the same time in my life. And then it's like something clicked. And I started to realize like, Oh my God, I've been going down some rabbit holes myself over the past few years. But yeah. How about you?
0: For me? I mean, we've both talked about like going through Elliot Smith phases and that was probably my biggest perpetration of fraud (laughs) was (laughs) Um, you know, I would always be told that I, that I sang like Elliot Smith and I, I know you get that way more than I ever did. But you know, it's, it's because we whisper our feelings.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's nice to sing that way. You know, it yeah. feels good.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the irrational thoughts that I have most often now is that of the legacy. Oh yeah. And that of like, like all of my, all of the art from my younger years is just about self-expression and wanting to be seen and heard and, Having felt that I had never had been, and so it was all like, oh well, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that thing where I die young, and I'm gonna do that thing where I don't take care of myself, and I'm gonna hold a grudge because nobody believes in me or nobody sees what I'm actually capable of and then like once I'm gone they'll see like all of the stuff that I left behind and they'll see what my capabilities were and what my value was and so many young artists think that way so I think like the biggest way that I challenge myself now with art is I look at those thoughts similar to that that still crop up from time to time and say like no motherfucker it's not your legacy that matters you got through the things that you got through so that you could have different conversations than just what your legacy is or what your value is. Um, if you can't define your own value, then you haven't learned the lesson. So that's how that kind
1: of manifests in in my writing process. Do you ever ever have those same thoughts? The legacy one for sure that pops up. It, I mean, it used to more, it kind of took me a bit to realize that the legacy, the best legacies, at least the ones that we talk about positively, they're passive you know they're they're exhaust they're just byproducts of living a life that was like worth a shit and it was like it was strange it was almost like it took the pressure off to think about living in that way it let me be grandiose which would get me through the day but also not work super hard in the ways that I should have been working because I was just sort of like dog-earing stuff for after I was dead and I didn't have to deal with it anymore you know it was like At some point, it kind of clicked, like, that that's a cop-out. I'm not living for anything. I'm not, I'm half-assing my own legacy. Like, that's pretty sad. And I sort of started to retool some of that thinking. But I was thinking last night, for some reason, I was watching some um, action movie, and I was, like, thinking about how, like, there's a bunch of people, like, somebody in there was a hero, and they they died for somebody else, you know, and had that sort of fall-on-your-sword moment, and their legacy was set in stone forever. And... I was thinking about that. I was like, there's not a lot of people, but there's a short list of people that I would die for. But is there anybody that I would do life in prison for? And I was like, Jesus Christ, living is way harder than dying, especially in a historical sense, you know? So, yeah, it got me thinking about all that. And you know? it's just, the legacy one was a big one. It was, it was, I think, the sandbag that I was using to sort of justify any, any slowness to my pace or any shortcomings that I might have had. And once I punched through that, there was this gut check of like, okay, well, now you're living, pal. Now you gotta you gotta sign your name to this shit like <laughs> everyone else. You know, pertinent
0: to this conversation and maybe to future conversations, the idea of grandiosity as a defense mechanism against worthlessness. There might be a school of psychology that explores grandiosity in a healthy way. We we necessarily think of it as an unhealthy element to to bring into your your day to day thinking, but you know, there might be something to the idea that you believe you were put here for a reason. There might be something to the idea that you're capable of great things and therefore that's what you're going to tout about yourself as, as more than just a defense mechanism, but as a self-motivator.
1: I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I can see that because you're just generating positive reinforcement at that point. I mean, if somebody else was telling you those things, it wouldn't be considered insane. I mean, it might be if they were the only one, but I mean, it's why people think fondly of like the relationships if they have like a good relationship with their parents and you know some people can't like leave the nest for that reason it's the it's that praise and that reinforcement that life just lacks after a certain point point. and if you're generating that yourself to me it's the issue is how much and at what times you believe it not that you're generating it you know because think about getting on stage if some part of you doesn't think that you should be up there it's going to be a shambles and its life is kind of no different if there isn't a reason why you get out of bed in the morning then why do it so i, I like grandiosity but it has to be kept in check like you have to be driving the car you know <laughs> like that's when it gets dangerous is if you're believing your own myth or you're coasting on it or something or it's hurting people or you're acting terribly because of it yeah
0: grandiosity i mean that's kind of what we were talking about like the, the imitation of our heroes, I think it necessarily allows us to operate with a confidence that we wouldn't otherwise have. But it also necessarily means
1: that you're uncertain about the art that you're making. I know, and that's tricky because in a lot of ways we should be because there is no certainty to it. It's just it's happening almost in a vacuum and then you're putting it out on good faith and there's a fair amount of the time that it doesn't work at least in the ways that you imagined. And it's like a reconciling process that has to happen where you, you sort of figure out how to temper your expectations, how to get closer to that nerve where they don't even matter anymore, like the world's response doesn't even matter. And it, to me, that's what diffuses some of the grandiosity is when you you distance yourself a little bit from those things that you're clinging to and things that mean that you're an artist. And if they don't happen, then you're not an artist or you're not whatever you're identifying as. Yeah. And a
0: lot of that will go back to the rational versus irrational where, you know, I know we're both people who like to watch music documentaries and and read biographies of artists and, and what have you. And, you know, I think one of the more irrational beliefs to come out of that is to maintain that you will have those same stepping stones in your life. You know like you you can you can end up basing so much of your own creative process and your own career path on what other people have done and so you have to kind of reconcile that and at some point believe that you're here for your own purpose you know you're in your specific time for your specific reason with your specific thoughts and like the very fact that you're a creative person and that you can write your own songs necessarily means that you don't need to try to be another artist. That that's like the hardest lesson to learn is that like, because you're creative, it means you're original. But again, we are conditioned to desire. And so we see elements of other people that we think we'd be better able to cope with than we're able to cope with elements of ourselves because we haven't learned to love and accept those elements of ourselves. And so sometimes you look at those like very self-destructive artists and you're just like, well, that's what I would be doing anyway. In order to cope with my own limitations, in order to cope with my own suffering, I would be a self-destructive person. And therefore, why not take on the burdens and personality traits of this person who has influenced me and has also been self-destructive? And so you just, that's the only parallel that you really need to draw before you start imitating
1: and plus the perspective is all different. You're We're seeing it from above, especially in the case of a, a documentary. You're seeing the before, the after, how everything links together, and you're not seeing the kind of grisly in-betweens a lot of the time. I mean, there's definitely some instances where you are, but it's very easy to identify with the protagonist in that way and really glorify parts of the story that maybe don't even seem glorious. I kind of realized it watching The Office one time I was... Sitting there watching it and thinking, like I, I love that like type of escapism. Like that's whenever I'm, especially if I'm just super depressed for a while, and it's like that bubble popped for me when I realized that I would be Toby, you know, like if this actually was my world and I actually lived in it, I would not be Jim or Michael or anybody that people speak highly of through it. I would totally be Toby, the dude who's just afraid to talk to anybody and prefers to be back in the annex. And I started realizing I do that when I when I've looked up to my idols and stuff too, I only see myself identifying with the good stuff or with the glorious part to the bad stuff. And I don't consider like the part of the tortured artist motif where you're puking over the kitchen sink, wondering if you're going to make it till morning and that kind of stuff. It's like that stuff decidedly unromantic and it doesn't encode the same way. But it's tricky because the parroting is necessary early on too to just develop skills. So it's like knowing where to catch that when it's impossible to catch it at the time in a way it's, it's a tricky balance.
0: I also wanted to go back to the, um, the archetypical characters that live in within our brains. I don't think I've ever asked you how much you've looked into like, um, like brain typing and that kind of thing.
1: Not much. Uh, like in passing, um, I took the Myers Briggs, like, I want to say a year ago. And I, Do you I mean, I find it got? interesting. I was like, what the fuck was I? I think I was an INFP. Yeah, that makes sense. But there was like a slash too. It was like a, might have been slash J. Okay. Cause I was wicked on the cusp for one or two of those. That's what I mean about like kind of the macho streak and stuff too. It was like, it was sensitive, like intuitive. Introspective, introverted, like that whole kind of basket of traits there. But there was also this kind of like get your shit together streak. And I was talking about it with my therapist and she was like, yeah, some people are kind of just on the cusp, like you can have both traits and it's, it's good. It's bad. It's whatever. But yeah. So I don't remember, but I was somewhere in that, that
0: realm. That's another one of those things where you can kind of look at different elements of your thinking, different uh, uh, traits of your thinking and identify them as, oh, I get this from being a cancer astrologically or whatever you are. I'm a cancer. Or um, I get this. This is my INFP talking. This is my. And this isn't necessarily those parts of your brain that are going to shelter the exiles. This is the parts of your brain that lead you to believe what you do or that leads you to need to have certain kinds of attention paid to you or or leads you to want to contribute in certain ways. But I was just talking about this stuff on Owen Korzyk's podcast, the fact that there are like so many resources out there that you can engage with and just to learn more about yourself and learn more about who you are. And, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll re-answer that question at this point because my most disruptive thinking for a long time was that I had to rely on other people to feel validation instead of being able to validate myself. And if I addressed my own needs, I would stop relying on others to recognize those needs, let alone relying on others to actually tend to those needs for me. So that's that's kind of the biggest CBT thing that I've learned, if you could call it that, is that like behaving in such a way where... You will even grow resentful of the people who aren't seeing you, who aren't recognizing your needs without having learned about them yourself first and without trying to tend to them on your own. But first you do have to name them and first you do have to uh, find them and acknowledge them and compartmentalize them and put them into your own little hierarchy of needs. So that's probably the biggest thing for me
1: it's charting territory if you think about it i mean if it was like the physical world and you were exploring a new place you'd be doing the same thing you just kind of making the maps and learning the terminology and naming shit and like it's it's crucial the beginning of any kind of journey like that do you think it's nature or nurture those like the personality types and and so on i
0: don't know i mean astrology would tell you that it's nature I don't put a ton of stock in astrology, but I I do put stock in one's ability to look at your zodiac sign, and if you share traits with what is commonly held to be the traits of that sign, then, you know, acknowledge that. Cancers have a hard time accepting love. Cancers have a hard time with trust. Cancers have a hard time feeling seen, you know? Cancers are like the most emotional of the bunch. Uh, so <laughs> like for me in particular, that was a really good resource. Just talking to other cancers. Is this true for you? Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's talk about this. And like, luckily I got to have that conversation with some openly vulnerable people. So it turned into a conversation about self-care ultimately, but is it nature versus nurture? I don't even know how much stock I've ever put in that question, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. They
1: don't seem mutually exclusive every time, at least. There's some stuff that might be, but... I mean, you know, just look
0: at the stories that we were telling about depression earlier and, and being like young people and struggling in the environment of counselors' offices and stuff like that. If you would look at depression as a chemical imbalance, that's nature. But how that chemical imbalance is nurtured is going to inform a lot of how you suffer later on or how you cope later on.
1: yeah. And I guess that's kind of what I mean is like how many of these like personality traits are actually just, you know, there's a certain ingredients that were put together to make something happen that way. The way like, um, remember that guy, I think it was Phineas Gage, that psychological experiment kind of that ended up happening with a guy got, he was like a railroad worker. He got a pipe through him and his personality just changed drastically and he was a completely different person. Like it kind of proved that there was something in the nature that way, but. Nurture was hugely at play throughout all his life, too. So it's, I don't know. I always just wonder about those lines, how hard they are. And again, it's hard to chart it because we begin these journeys when we're wicked young. So,
0: well, this is what's important to note. Um, he became a different person because the
1: two halves of his brain were severed from one another. But if structural aspects of your brain, whether they're chemical or physical, can have an impact that profound on your personality, you know, like how what else could be like that versus what are we just learning in response to what we're given? Like if you like, same if, if you screw with somebody's dopamine or something or the way that you can be in manic versus depressive or it's like, I don't know. It's just kind of, I feel like not enough is even known about the brain in these respects yet to totally understand some of that stuff. But it fascinates me that there's that paradox of it. Like you can't, it's has to study itself basically to learn about it. So it's already, a flawed experiment, just from <laughs> from the jump. That's so meta, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that whole like concept, though. That like we can't, in a way, physically study our brains because we're using our brains. Yeah,
0: I think it's safe to say that there are some things that are just always in our nature. There are some dispositions that we are more likely to display. But I think again, how are interpretation of suffering and the treatment of it is nurtured and is taught and is modeled for us at a young age probably has the most to do with that. But, you know, the, the lack of the proper treatment or the proper models being given to you when you're young, when you're first being introduced to suffering that becomes lifelong that is when we sort of develop these behaviors and these sort of toxic ways of thinking that we then have to battle and that we then have to rationalize um, or replace with rationality later on. Okay, what have you learned from this episode and how do you think you'll be applying it to your life?
1: I think it really, it's given me a much firmer sense of the concept of vulnerability, like a much more developed sense than I had gone into it. With you know, like I had my own perspective on what that was and what that meant and what that felt like. But I think even being vulnerable more internally was something that I I hadn't explored in this same way. You know, I'd poked at those things with certain sticks at certain times, but I don't think it was in a vulnerable way. I think it was in a "we gotta fix some shit right now" kind of way. So I'm gonna I'm gonna explore that some more. But. How about you?
0: I was talking earlier about selftherapy.org, which is a series of audio recordings. It's kind of a meditation practice sort of thing. But the first three things that I wrote down were boost your tolerance of undesirable emotions, be not emotionally dependent on external events, and positive feelings accompanied by fear of losing them. And just those three bullet points woke me up to the urgency of this topic. And and it's funny when I read self-help stuff, like I often find myself thinking like, oh, I've already dealt with this, but just reading internal emotions, not reliant on external events really hit me kind of hard because like I was just saying, that has a lot to do with putting the pressure on the outside rather than putting the pressure on yourself. And, and that has to do with dissociation, too, or, or distraction from anxiety or depression. If you're then creating just external joys to temporarily distract yourself from your internal anguish, then you're never really dealing with the problem. So his points were the ones that hit me hardest. But what I've learned most is probably the reinforcement of interacting with these individual elements you know like we as introverts and and we as people who tend to distract ourselves from negativity we create these little inner worlds for ourselves right like we we create our own realities almost and i think that like by that logic it should be relatively easy to like think of all of these little facets of your inner brain to be little characters, you know? And I get a kick out of thinking about that. Like, I want, I'd love little gnomes running around. I was just... picturing gnomes, <laughs> too. <Yeah. laughs> you know, you'd think it would be a little bit easier to see that deep space of your brain in that way. The problem, though, is that it's trauma. A lot of that stuff comes from trauma, and a lot of that stuff comes from not wanting to acknowledge that certain feelings could come back. And... I think like the most successful way to look at this is there's a whole little fairy tale going on (laughs) in your psyche and it's going to be a dark tale, but it doesn't have to be uh, hurtful to you to tell yourself this tale, but it's not all meant to be told at once. You introduce these characters bit by bit and they can only be introduced once you recognize that there is Truth to them. You're not supposed to like all of the characters. You are supposed to know that some of them are villains. You are supposed to know that some of them are heroes and some of them might just be NPCs. But, like, try to tell yourself the story. And the goal of self therapy is to allow you to tell that story in a way that doesn't hurt you, but allows you to communicate with all these characters who are going to be a part of you anyway. So you might as well develop the ability to trust them. And that's our show. We'll be back in two weeks with an episode that features our first guest, Ryan Herrick. He's a singer, songwriter, and guitarist from Chicago. And he joined us for a discussion about knowing what serves you. It's a conversation that I thought was really amazing. So I hope you tune in for that. Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production. And you can follow us on social media to keep up to date with what's going on. Until next time.